0: This morning we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 9, and we will be looking specifically at verses 9 through 13, but before we look at the text, I want to spend a little bit of time with you regarding my perspective of this movie that is out, The Passion of the Christ. I was able to see it yesterday, and I've had many people in the last uh, several days call and ask what I thought of it and I know some of you will be doing the same thing and I thought, well, I need to respond to this and maybe do it once and for all put it on a put it on the tape and uh, and at the same time, I want to continue on in our study of this text so i as I looked at the text, I could see that there There really is a way of blending the two together. So before we look at the text, I want to respond to you with respect to my perspective of the passion of the Christ. Certainly it is a vivid portrayal of the last 12 hours of the suffering and the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. Audiences will see him tortured in his earthly humiliation which is a stark contrast to his next appearance in his heavenly glorification. But much has been said about how accurately does this film really adhere to the four Gospels. And certainly I would say that in many ways it accurately portrays what you would see in the Gospel, um, in the four Gospels. However, My concern is not necessarily with how close it was in some ways, but what was left out. What was said is not nearly as important as what is not said. Certainly with respect to the 12 hours, the last 12 hours of Christ, you will see, for the most part, an an accurate um, depiction of that. But what was not accurate was the representation of the message of the four Gospels, of the message of Christ. In terms of its accuracy, I knew that ultimately it would not be accurate to the overall message of the four Gospels before the film ever came out. And the reason I knew that is because there was such a lack of outrage. And you say, well, I thought I thought there's been an outrage. No, there, there, there's been a very... Mild offense compared to what it would have been had it really truly depicted the message of Christ. Certainly, some of the Jews are offended and so on, but folks, if it really presented the gospel, the outrage would be absolutely astronomical. And since I knew that wasn't going on, I knew that something would be amiss. And yes, for the most part, what was represented, uh, and what I should say was presented, uh, followed the general storyline of the historical narrative of the last twelve hours of Christ that we would read in the four Gospels, and certainly there was some artistic license that was added, some things added, but certainly a lot of things left out. But, friends, here's what you must hear. That is altogether different than being true to the Gospel of Christ. Because certainly that was not the case. For example, no one would come away from that film and be able to explain the biblical plan of salvation. You're just not going to see that. And for this reason, I would say that the story was not told in its context. Unbelievers will not come away from this movie, from this film, and understand that Jesus was eternally God that He was Lord of all creation, that He sustains all things by the word of His power. They're not going to come away with that. Uh, They're not going to come away with an understanding of why Jesus had to die, that, that only He was the one that could die. They will come away with the fact that He came to do the will of His Father, whatever that was. There will be no understanding from people as to the utter holiness of God and the utter depravity of man. That man is a sinner by nature. That man is a sinner by choice. That man is a sinner by divine declaration. And that therefore man has incurred upon himself the penalty of spiritual and physical death. And thereby he is subject to the wrath of God. Yet this was the message of the Gospels. This was the message of Christ. People will not come away with any understanding that man is utterly unable to save himself, and that all of his righteousnesses are like filthy rags, and that any doctrine of salvation apart from New Testament Christianity is an abomination to God. They will not come away with that understanding. They will not come away with an understanding of why only a man that is fully God and fully human, without a sin nature, namely Jesus, could satisfy the wrath of God. Why only Jesus could give his life as a ransom. They will not understand how his righteousness is imputed to those who trust him. There will be no understanding of Acts 4.12, where we read, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. However, they did quote John 14.6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. By the way, the whole thing is done in such a way... That you cannot understand the Aramaic language that is being spoken, there's only captions at the bottom of the page, but it was still very effective. And even though they presented John fourteen six, without context, this is meaningless. They will have no understanding that an eternal hell awaits all who refuse to repent and make him the Lord of their life. Now, I have no doubt that most unseased, saved people will view this film and come away certainly with a renewed appreciation of the sufferings of Christ. But they will not come away with an understanding that he was their creator and is their creator and that he is also their judge and that they are in desperate need to, to, to bow down before him as Savior and Lord. They will not come away with a sense of understanding their own sinfulness, the depth of their own depravity, and be amazed at the divine provision that is ours through the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what I think they will come away with, beyond an an understanding of of the, 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 the horrific torture of Christ, they will come away with attitudes such as, well, this was a great picture of the power of the human spirit. This is a great movie helping us understand man's potential to love and to sacrifice for fellow man. And certainly we see here in this movie the need to, I'm sure they would say, have the freedom of religion and put down the tyranny of religious bigotry. Or they might say, like the professor of theology at Vanderbilt University, John Fatamano, and I quote, Jesus is a model of nonviolent resistance, and the cross a symbol of dying to self. You see, friends, they'll not understand that the crucifixion of Christ is all about reconciling sinful man to a holy God. They'll not understand the words of Peter that they depicted in the movie, where he said in 1 Peter 2.24, that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That he bore the wrath of God in our place to satisfy his justice. And you hear all this silly talk about who killed Jesus. Was it the Jews? Was it the Romans? And all of it. Folks, that isn't the point. Jesus said in John 10 I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. They'll not understand Mark 10:45, 45, where the Lord said, the son of man also came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the whole point of the gospel. They'll not understand Hebrews 12:2, where we read that it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated now at the right hand of the throne of God. Furthermore, the horrible penalty Jesus endured, dear friends, was not inflicted by the Jews. It was not inflicted by the Romans, but it was inflicted by the Father. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, we read that He, God the Father, made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Isaiah 53, verse 6 says, The Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Then He goes on to describe the sufferings of His beloved Son, and He adds, Yet it was the will of the Lord to bruise Him. He has put Him to grief. You see, this was God's plan of redemption all along. In Romans 5, 8, we read that God shows His love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, friends, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the context for the last 12 hours of Jesus' life. And without that context, one can imagine what people will come away with. John the Baptist said of our Lord in John 1.29 that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Paul tells us in Galatians 3.13 that He became a curse for us. If you want to go back to the Gospels in Luke 19.10, the Lord says of Himself, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Friends, that is the passion of the Christ. How I wished as I saw this film that these glorious truths had been offered at the very beginning of the show to provide the context. You see, this is why Jesus had to die. And then to be able to close the show with Jesus' own words out of the Gospels. In Matthew 10, verse 32 through 34, where the Lord says, Everyone who shall confess me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever shall deny me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth, but a sword. I fear that the director, Mel Gibson, has missed all of this. He said, and I quote, I went to the wounds of Christ to cure my wounds. My wounds were healed by his wounds, and I had to tell the story of those wounds. My dear friends, the gospel of Christ is not about curing personal wounds. Jesus never once preached a message on how to raise your self-esteem, how to overcome addictions, how to have a better marriage, how to somehow rise above the pain of personal or physical or sexual abuse, how to conquer depression or or personal disillusionment. Dear friends, he came to save sinners. The gospel of Christ is not about this life, but about the next life, about eternity, eternity. You see, the gospel is the good news for those who come to grips, first of all with the bad news, and on the basis of that, who cry out to Jesus as God for undeserved mercy and grace. And as a result, they will be saved. Frankly, I found myself being deeply burdened as I watched the film, for the cast, and especially the director. I understand that the director is a Roman Catholic, Mel Gibson. And while I mean no disrespect at all towards him personally, I certainly hope that, 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 he, that, that he knows Christ as Savior. But I must say that if he holds to Roman Catholic doctrines of salvation, he will never enter the kingdom of Christ. Roman Catholicism is an apostate religious system through and through. It's basically a merry cult. And basically, the gospel according to Jesus is is radically different than the gospel according to Roman Catholicism. Now having said this, I truly pray that God in his mercy will use this film to bring men into himself. Certainly, I think it can cause people to, to think about who Jesus was. but. I don't want you to get your hopes up too high, thinking that somehow they're going to lead there with an understanding of the gospel of Christ. Now, as a footnote, while well, many, uh, I, I can tell, are seeing this movie as God's new secret weapon for modern evangelism, may I remind you that this has never been God's method. His methods have never changed. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And this film is not the word of Christ. It's only a few words of Christ, you see. Like I say, the danger so often in in heresy is not what is said, but what is left out. And... Certainly, there, what is depicted is nowhere near an accurate representation of the passion or of the message of Christ to reconcile sinners unto himself. And that is the gospel. Paul said in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. You see, friends, forget about a multi-million dollar movie. If you want to see people come to Christ, just unleash the gospel on them. That's always been God's method. And it's interesting. You know what ultimately God's method is? The foolishness of preaching. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 20, we read, Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. God only knows how he will use this portrayal of himself to accomplish his eternal purposes. I'm just thankful, dear friends, that that in God's infinite love and mercy and grace, he draws people unto himself that they might be saved and that he is the one that is building his church. Now, if I could add, the selected theology of this film should not surprise us because the message, the whole message, shall I say, of The cross is horribly offensive. In fact, it is horribly offensive by God's design. God intended it to be a narrow way that few will find. And you hear people say, when they really hear the message of the cross, and they hear the message of Jesus, the gospel according to Christ, you will hear them say, oh, come on, you've got to be kidding me. You mean to tell me that God became a man? And then he lived this perfect life. And then he willingly allowed his father to torture him on a Roman cross. And he did that because we couldn't do it because of our sinfulness. And because we are so sinful, so wretched, that there's nothing we can do to get this God of wrath to save us. And so he had to use, he had to send his son and pour out his wrath upon him. And in order for us to be saved, to be reconciled to God, we have to place our faith in his atoning work. Is that what you're telling me? No, that's what Jesus is telling you. You see, it's absurd to a world that is lost in their sin. You see, the gospel is revolting to those who are perishing. And there's little wonder that this film, as incomplete as it is, would be so controversial. Once again, I say just think of the outrage if it told the whole story. You see, man can't handle the truth about himself. He is hopelessly biased in his own favor. He is absolutely convinced of his own goodness, of his own ability to somehow win divine favor, or at least. He's convinced that he is capable of securing it through his own efforts, somehow, some way. And so, because of all of this, man bristles at the accusation of his depravity. We're told about that in Romans 1. He suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. The scriptures teach us that, that man loves darkness rather than light because his deeds are evil. He doesn't want to be responsible to God. And we see this even in the gospel light apostasy of contemporary evangelicalism, where People are considered more deprived than depraved, where repentance has been replaced with recovery, where preaching has become soft, kind of warm, fuzzy, bereft of of doctrinal clarity and and substance, and as as a result, hearts become calloused, cold, undiscerning. You see, indeed, the, the message of the gospel is a hard pill to swallow. And so what what has happened is people will come along and they will eviscerate certain truths of the gospel that could be offensive and then play up other things that will somehow speak to people's hearts and give them an idea of the love of God through the sacrificial death of Christ. Now, all of that is true, but taken out of context, don't you see, that is not the gospel. We see this constantly. Let's eliminate the idea of sin. And if you don't see your sinfulness, you will certainly not see the need for a Savior. And then Jesus becomes a mere symbol of of love and an icon of virtue. And He becomes basically an idol depicting the very best of the human spirit. The cross is reduced to a mere symbol of dying to self. Jesus becomes nothing more than than an illustration of nonviolent resistance. And I'm grieved because so many pulpits, pulpits extol the virtues of self love, and we see that today in a kind of quasi Christian narcissism, of which we are warned about in 2 Timothy 3 1 through 2. This is certainly a characteristic of false teachers. There we read, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self. Robert Schuler of the Crystal Cathedral has a book, I've mentioned it before, Self-Esteem, the New Reformation, where he perfectly illustrates Paul's warning. In his book, he says, once a person believes he is an unworthy sinner, it is doubtful if he can really honestly accept the saving grace God offers in Jesus Christ. A friends, such hogwash sells well in our self-centered society. You see, self-denial is out, self-fulfillment is in. Self-importance is what is paramount. And false teachers have gone to great lengths to make the gospel less offensive and the church more relevant more politically correct you see every effort is being made to make the narrow way as wide as possible and this is what has really energized the seeker sensitive market minded church growth movement of our day, of our day where Market, marketing guys basically get together with unbelievers who are naturally offended with the true gospel of Christ, and they discover ways to tone it down, to make it more palatable, and then they reinvent the gospel to their liking, and as a result, the church becomes a consumer-driven organization rather than a truth-driven body of Christ. Paul tells us that the church is to be the pillar and the support of the truth. And, of course, the first thing to go is all this stuff about sin, about self-denial, about the certainly about the exclusivity of Christianity as being the only way. John MacArthur, in his excellent new book, Hard to Believe, I would recommend it for all of you. He says, and I quote, recently, a group of more than 50 pastors and laymen including a divinity school dean representing a half dozen mainline Christian denominations, placed an ad in a major daily newspaper insisting it was, quote, long ethically, morally, and spiritually for anyone, whether individual, group, church, or religion, to claim exclusive access to God or God's grace, blessing, or salvation. Claims of exclusivity by Christians and others have played a self-justifying role in causing untold human suffering, End quote. Can you imagine that? Beloved, if this grieves our hearts, what must it do to God's? Well, the very dynamics concerning this film, Controversy, in our culture are well depicted in our text this morning. And now we'll seg- segue into Matthew 9, as once again we see God revealing himself in love and truth through the Lord Jesus Christ and then we see many men self-righteous men in their pride rejecting the whole thing and we see also a broken man following the Lord Jesus in faithful obedience and i've outlined these these verses with in three very basic categories that i believe summarize this age-old conflict between men and God. First of all, we'll see the sinner's call. Secondly, the self-righteous criticisms. And thirdly, the Savior's correction. Let's look at verses 9 through 13 of Matthew 9. And as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And it happened that as he was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax gatherers and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with tax gatherers and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. First, we see the sinner's call in verse 9. It's fascinating that throughout the Gospels, Jesus did not necessarily seek out the religious VIPs of the world. Those people that were convinced of their own spiritual supremacy. But rather, what did he do? He pursued the common folks, those struggling with life, those that felt the pangs of guilt over their sin, those frustrated with the never-ending religious rules and rituals and sacrifices of their day. And he preached repentance and forgiveness to the spiritually sick, to the brokenhearted, to the humble, to the contrite, to the penitent. That's why he says in verse 13, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And often these people would be the poor and the oppressed and the ignorant and and the simple. The fishermen. Others were sometimes the notoriously wicked, the prostitutes, the idolaters. And oh, yes, those nasty tax collectors, tax collectors. Here we have an example of Jesus excuse me, calling such a man a sinner who was in need of forgiveness. Let me give you the context here. Matthew, of course, is the inspired writer of this gospel, but he is also the one writing of himself here. The gospel of Mark tells us that his other name was Levi and he was the son of Alpheus. Many times, by the way, people in those days had more than one name. And here we read that Matthew only pins two verses about himself, evidence of his humility. And it's interesting that the most he says about himself is that he was sitting in the tax office. Now, folks, if you know anything about that culture, and frankly, even our culture, you will understand that this was not a positive statement about oneself. Jewish scholar Alfred Edersheim gives us much insight into the character and conduct of an ancient tax collector. And I think you need to understand this. They were called publicanes. And a publicani was one that was absolutely hated by the Jews because these men were loyal to the Roman oppressors. These men were barred from the synagogue. They were placed on the same level as unclean animals, like swine. They were not allowed uh, to, to touch them in any way. They were considered traitors and liars, uh, murderers. They were so bad that the Jews even forbid them to give testimony in a trial. The publicani would purchase a franchise from Rome that entitled him to levy taxes upon the people and even travelers that came through the area. Part of that would go back to Rome and the excess they would keep for themselves. And that's why they were always very wealthy. Now, of course, this was legalized extortion and they could do it because they had the power of the Roman army behind them. And the Jews, of course, thought they needed to be under a theocracy, not the monarchy of Rome. And so Rome's occupation was considered to be something exceedingly wicked. And to have to pay tribute to them was rubbing salt in the wounds, especially paying those exorbitant taxes that you knew were being siphoned off by the publicani. Now there were two categories of these publicanes. There were the Gabbi that collected the general taxes, taxes on land, property, income, various poll taxes, registration taxes. They had basic land taxes, for example, that went to Rome. One tenth of one's grain would go to Rome, and one fifth of one's fruit or wine. They also had an income tax, which was one percent of one's earnings. by the way, when you think about it, they had it better than we do today, don't they, or didn't they? Of course, uh, they had poll taxes that varied all over the place, and the tax collector now was was allowed again to to add whatever he could get away with, and very often what the the, the Gabi would do, they would come along and and accept bribes from the wealthy in an effort to reduce or falsify their taxes. And then, of course, they would cost shift on to the poor. That would have to make up the difference. And so these men would amass great fortunes at the expense of their countrymen. Well, not only did you have the Gabi, but there was also what was called the Mocase, they collected a broader variety of taxes, tantamount to our um, taxes on import import duties, for example, tollway taxes, uh, uh, various license fees. They had the same types of things in those days, and there was absolutely no limit upon what they could come up with to tax. Virtually any possession, any activity, they could they could tax. And so They would tax people's servants. They would tax their tools, their boats, their boat dock, the number of fish that you catch. They would tax a traveler that would come through and, and uh, tax his donkey. Or They even had the power to open private letters to determine if there was some kind of a business transaction going on and then maybe they could levy a tax on that as well. Now, there were two kinds of moques: The great mochis that would hire other men to do their dirty work. And then there were the small Mokis that did their own assessing, did their own collecting. These were the ones that interfaced with the community on a day-to-day basis. Now, folks, the, the people despised the gabis and they hated the great Mokis. But, oh, dear friends, the small Mokis, the actual one that they saw every day, the one that came and knocked on their door and took the money, The one that basically stole from them, they held them in utter contempt. Guess which one Matthew was. You guessed it, the last one. Obviously, Matthew was convicted of his wickedness. He was living in Capernaum. And of course, this is where Jesus was staying, much of his earthly ministry. And he had heard the message of Jesus' forgiveness undoubtedly. He had witnessed the miracles. And obviously, Jesus knew of his spiritual condition as well. And Matthew understood, obviously, the Lord's mercy and his grace and and his forgiveness. and, And so what Jesus did, knowing all of this also of Matthew's heart, Jesus comes along and says to Matthew, follow me. Now, obviously, the scribes and the Pharisees were infuriated when this happened. You think about this. You see, they already hated Jesus because of the way he so effectively unmasked their hypocrisy. Because of the way he so ingeniously exposed their foolishness. I mean, these guys were really ticked. And now, of all things, to add insult upon injury. I mean, here is the ultimate snob now. Jesus comes along and says to a small mochase, follow me. Matthew, that despicable, murdering thief. And it's interesting that Matthew did exactly that. He followed the Lord. In fact, Luke 5.28, in Luke's gospel, we read that Matthew left everything behind and rose and began to follow him. Matthew didn't say that of himself. He didn't want to brag. But he left everything. And he had to have been a very wealthy man he left his lucrative career, his, all of his material blessings. You see, folks, nothing had any value compared to the infinite value of following Christ. He had witnessed firsthand the staggering hypocrisy of apostate Judaism. No doubt he had taken bribes even from some of those scribes and Pharisees to lighten their tax burden, of course. Yet he also knew the weight of his own burden of sin. He felt his own guilt. And as we discussed last week, obviously the father drew him to himself and he confessed his sin. He was regenerated. He was born again. He was saved. And now with his heart overflowing, with this wonderful joy of sins forgiven and the hope of heaven, the burden of his sin now off of his back, what does he want to do? He wants to tell his friends. By the way, There's at least two marks of genuine conversion. One is a willingness to deny self and follow Christ, regardless of the cost. And secondly, a desire to evangelize, to tell others about the Lord. By the way, can I pause for a second? May I ask you, are you willing to tell others about Christ? And I don't mean just write a check to the church and send to a missionary and let them do it for you, but I mean mean really actually share your testimony about the grace of God in your life to your friends, your neighbors, your family. Or maybe I need to back up a little bit. Maybe you need to ask yourself, if I really ever decided to follow Christ? Maybe I have given lip service to that, but is it really truly the desire of my heart? Is the passion of my heart to obey and serve and worship the Lord? That He is my number one priority? You say, well, that's, I don't know. I, I guess, I, I think I have you know what, let's do better than that. Can I challenge you? Why don't you, this afternoon, ask your spouse to evaluate you. Ask your children. If you're not married, ask your friend. Ask the Spirit of God to really examine your heart. Because, folks, I fear that many times, again, we are hopelessly biased in our own favor. And we need to be suspect of our own spirituality. Ask yourself, how would Jesus evaluate my faithfulness in following Him? Tragically, following Christ for most Christians, most Christians in our culture today is merely showing up to church on a fairly routine basis. And, folks, if that is all it is, and you know Christ, and you truly call yourself a Christian, you really need to examine your heart. Maybe truly you are born again, but certainly you're grieving the Holy Spirit. You've placed yourself in the pathway of divine chastening, and you are forfeiting blessing in your life. Well, Matthew decides to throw a great banquet to celebrate his new life in Christ and to introduce his his friends to Jesus. And we see here from the text that they were tax gatherers and sinners. By the way, sinners, harmatoloi in Greek, is a term uh, denoting those who had no respect for God, who had no respect for the Mosaic law, for the rabbinical traditions. Basically, folks, this was the mafia of the day. These folks were, were, were the prostitutes and the dope fiends and, 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 and the drunkards and the murderers and the thieves and the politicians. This was really the who's who of the wicked. So they're all now dining with Jesus. Now, can't you see the scene here? The Pharisees and the scribes are sneaking around like, like modern-day paparazzi, desperately trying to find fault, you know. Oh, if they would have had a camera of that day. Don't you know they would have taken a picture and it would have been on all the papers? Trying to catch Jesus in some compromising situation. And this brings us to the second scene of the narrative, the self-righteous critics. In verse 11, we read about it. Why is your teacher eating with the tax gatherers and sinners, they say? In other words, he claims to be so spiritual. Look at him. Not once has he offered to eat with us, and we are the religious leaders of Judaism. But you see, they fail to realize that, from God's perspective, they were the self-righteous, self-appointed keepers of the gate. They had the gift of criticism. They were the fault finders, judging others according to their own standard, not God's standard. By the way, it was probably this scenario that later fueled the slanderous indictment of Jesus in Matthew 11, verse 19, where we read that they said of him, he is a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax gatherers and of sinners." Well, Jesus overhears and responds to their query, which was really a veiled indictment. And he says to them in verse 12, is it not those who are healthy? Or he says, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. And this brings us to the third scene in the narrative, the Savior's correction. The Savior now uses the perfect analogy. And here's what he's saying, friends. Just as a physician would be expected to tend to the sick and not to the healthy, likewise, the Savior of sinners would be expected to tend to sinners in need of forgiveness. That's the point. And I believe there was also a sting in Jesus' correction. I think he was also saying, what about you men? You're supposedly the, the spiritual positions of the people. Why aren't you about the task of tending to sinners like these? Oh, that's right. You're, you're, you're too good to associate with these type of people. Yeah, they're they're unclean, but you are clean. They're unrighteous, but, but you are righteous. You are the theological know-it-alls, and these are the ignoramuses. I, I I understand. That's why he says in verse thirteen, "But go and learn," which was a term that was often used in the traditions of that of that day when somebody needed to basically understand their theology better. Go and learn. And don't you know that was a slap in the face to these scholars? I mean, nobody would ever tell them that. But Jesus did. Go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. But folks, Jesus could not have chosen a more indicting passage to quote. This is a passage from Hosea 6, 6, where we read, I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm not impressed with your insincere rituals. I'm not impressed with your disingenuous ceremonies. I'm not impressed with your sanctimonious religiosity. What's your compassion for those who are dying in their sins? Where's your love for the unlovely? Where's your sacrifice and mercy? Your sacrifice of mercy and sacrifice of grace that needs to be extended to those who understand at least. You see, you're just like Hosea's unfaithful, adulterous wife, Gomer. You are spiritual harlots. You unfaithful hypocrites. You see, that was the sting behind the passage that he quoted to them. And that's why he said, I did not come to call the righteous. In other words, the self-righteous like you, who consider yourselves to be worthy of divine blessing because you're such a good person, or because you keep the law even though you've contrived it, and it's all external and phony. But I came to call sinners. Sinners like these with whom I am dining. Yes, indeed. Sinners like Matthew that you despise. You see, friends, again, this was the passion of the Christ. To seek and to save that which was lost. And to lay down his life as a ransom for many to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him, that we might become trophies of His grace. I believe Isaac Watts understood this well when he penned these lyrics in 1707. And I close with this thought. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss, and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast. Save in the death of Christ my God, all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to His blood. See from His head, His hands, His feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? his dying crimson like a robe, spread o'er his body on the tree, Then I am dead to all the globe and all the globe is dead to me. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the glorious story of the gospel. We thank you that it is more than merely a fictional story, as some would believe. But Lord, it is the truth of God unto salvation. Lord, I pray that you will take these wonderful truths that we have rehearsed again this morning and cause them to bear much fruit in our hearts, that we might live consistently with them and bring much glory to you. And finally, Lord, I pray for those who do not know You as Savior. And Lord, I pray especially for all the thousands and thousands of people that are seeing this movie with this selective theology. Lord, I pray that somehow You can even use this to cause them to ask the hard questions, why did Jesus really have to die? And then, Lord, would by Your grace and by Your mercy... Show them the truth of the gospel through some friends, through some pastor, certainly through Your Word and by the power of Your Spirit, that they might fall at the foot of the cross and cry out for the salvation that can only come by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus and for His sake. Amen. Brian,